Good morning, church. Let's return to Matthew's gospel in the sixth chapter as we continue to study Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. If you're using one of our chair Bibles, you can find the passage on page 860. Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. For the last few weeks, we've been studying Matthew 6, where Jesus warns against external righteousness for the sake of man's praise and instructs on inner righteousness done in secret for God's reward. And in our passage today on fasting, Jesus will repeat the fact that the condition of our hearts matters in our acts of righteousness. And as you know, in Matthew 6, there are three acts of righteousness that Jesus elaborates on, giving, praying, and fasting. So following the model prayer in verse 16, Jesus says this about fasting. Whenever you fast, don't be gloomy like the hypocrites, for they make their faces unattractive so that their fasting is obvious to people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that your fasting isn't obvious to others, but to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. This is the word of the Lord. This section on fasting parallels the preceding sections on giving and praying. You'll note that in each of those passages, there is a negative and positive instruction on these acts of righteousness. How God's people should not and should practice giving, praying, and fasting. And then Jesus offers a promise that God the Father sees each of those spiritual acts and will reward according to the motivations Behind them. Notice well that Jesus says, whenever you give, whenever you pray, whenever you fast. It appears that Jesus had the same assumption that his disciples would fast as they would give and pray. It's interesting in Matthew's gospel that you have eight of the 40 occurrences of fasting in the New Testament. And in three of those references in Matthew's gospel, Jesus seems to affirm that fasting would be practiced by his followers. So look again with me at verse 16. Whenever you fast. And then in verse 17, when you fast. Another important passage in Matthew's gospel on fasting is found in Matthew 9. And in Matthew 9, 14, John's disciples come to Jesus saying, Why do we And the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast. And Jesus responds to them by saying, Can the wedding guests be sad while the groom is with them? The time will come when the groom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. So Jesus indicates in Matthew's gospel that fasting is not only for pastors or just even the A-rate Christians, but fasting is a part of basic Christianity. Until the ascended bridegroom, Jesus Christ, returns for his bride, the church, fasting is a spiritual discipline his disciples, as they are able, will occasionally practice. Which means that we are likely due for a sermon on fasting. One of the reasons we love the kind of book-by-book preaching that this congregation undertakes is that it exposes us to passages such as fasting that are good for our souls, that are edifying for the church. Now, if you've not heard a a sermon on fasting, you're in good company because I've never preached a sermon on fasting. 
And the fact that fasting is a neglected topic in preaching and teaching also indicates that fasting is likely a neglected discipline in practice also. Maybe some of that is due to life in 21st century America where food is so accessible. But surely some of it is that we are accustomed to comfort which makes the thought of doing without food, even for a short amount of time, very unappealing to us. With the type of advances that we've had in the plenty of food, the types of medicine we have, the travel we can enjoy, the, tech, the technology we enjoy also, we also likely don't see our need as clearly as in previous generations. And thus fasting is something that we're more aware of and have heard of than that which we have practiced. So some of us, perhaps this year, have fasted for dietary reasons, but within your own heart, think how how many of us have fasted in the last year for spiritual reasons? Well, this morning, I hope we, we will be inspired to see fasting as a spiritual discipline with good purposes. Now, many of us, including myself, have more difficulty seeing fasting as good than seeing something like feasting as good. We are quick to embrace a text like 1 Timothy 4.3 with no issues that God created foods to be received with gratitude by those who believe and know the truth. So I think it's safe to say that we are far more successful at the discipline of feasting than fasting. But Jesus' words to us here in Matthew chapter 6 will teach us that there is a greater experience of God that awaits us in fasting. So in this sermon, I want to outline three aspects of Christian fasting. Along the way, we will take a look at a definition of fasting, Jesus' teaching on fasting, examples of fasting in Scripture, the benefits of fasting, how to get started in fasting, and then we'll close by beholding our Lord Jesus who fasted as well. So three aspects of Christian fasting. First, Christian Christian fasting is a secret discipline. It is a secret discipline. So before we get to the nature of Jesus' teaching in verses 16 through 18, let's first address what Christian fasting is. Some of you might be aware of Donald Whitney's book, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life. Here's how he defines fasting. He says, It is a believer's voluntary abstinence from food for spiritual Purposes. And each of those words is worth commenting on. First, it's a discipline for believers, which is why I'm calling it Christian fasting. Next, it's a voluntary discipline. Outside of Jesus' instruction here in Matthew 6, the various examples we see in Scripture, there is nothing in the New Covenant defined about the frequency, occasion, or even method of fasting. It's at our discretion when, how often, and why we fast. Finally, fasting is primarily understood as the declining of food for spiritual reasons. And in this way, fasting is intentional. It differs from dieting in that it is primarily spiritually driven. I'll elaborate more on those points later on, but that is a brief orientation to fasting. So in our passage... Jesus again employs the term secret. So notice this pattern with me in Matthew chapter 6. In verse 4, he says, Give in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And then in the section on praying, verse 6, Pray in secret, and your Father who sees you in secret 
will reward you. And then in verse 18, fast in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. As we've been discussing about the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is addressing the issue of religious authenticity and spiritual genuineness. And as we've heard in previous weeks, Jesus both tells us that these acts, including fasting, are characteristic of following him. And yet he is clear that how and why we do them indicates whether our godliness is merely external or whether it's genuine. In the case of fasting, there are occasions where fasting would not be private, such as fasting alongside other church members or family members. But in each situation, Jesus says, fasting should always be personal. It should express our true devotion to God. Luke 18.12 records an example of a Pharisee fasting twice a week. But apparently, fasting for some had become an empty tradition and an external ritual. These verses on fasting are not difficult to comprehend, are they? Jesus' teaching is straightforward. Jesus says that when you fast, don't draw attention to yourself. We see in these verses that the hypocrites intentionally neglected normal steps in hygiene, oil, and washing. And they did so so that their fasting would be obvious to others. And so the point that Jesus is making is clear. Appear normal when you fast. Do not intentionally neglect your appearance, but intentionally tend to your appearance such that your fasting is not observable based on how you look or act. This means things like comb your hair, iron your shirt, shave if that's something you need to do. Whatever is typical of your appearance when you don't fast, aim to keep that appearance when you do fast so that your fasting is not obvious to others but to God. In short, appear ordinary when you fast. Fasting is meant to be a humble act of Christian devotion. It's not an opportunity to maintain or increase our spiritual reputation. And that is why we need to understand that fasting is a good discipline, but it can also be a dangerous discipline. Let's not skip over the fact that the Pharisees did fast twice a week, and we know that fasting is not easy. So the lesson that Jesus is drawing out is that God wants inner devotion. And yes, that inner devotion does lead to forms of outward sacrifice like fasting. But in the words of Proverbs 21.3, righteousness is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. Godliness is more than outward sacrifice. So just like we shouldn't carry our tithe envelope in our hand throughout the week so that people ask what's in our hand, and just like we shouldn't carry a prayer mat so that people inquire about its purpose, we should not carry our fasting on us in our physical appearance. And here again in the Sermon on the Mount, Christ exhorts His people that we practice righteousness for the right reasons, for the right motivations, for the praise of God, for the good of other people. But oftentimes, those acts of righteousness are in secret. Jesus' instruction on secrecy and fasting, I think, also is meant to keep us from evaluating others who may or may not fast. If we all knew how often or infrequent each of us fasted, we might be prone to elevate certain people or even increase our own fasting to appear more godly. 
But fasting is not the threshold of Christian maturity. Fasting in the Christian life can be helpful. It's certainly God-glorifying. But it, it is not the definitive metric of godliness. So let's trust that God knows best the secret nature of fasting. And let's observe together the wisdom of our Lord in the voluntary nature of Christian fasting, which I think preserves our unity in the Lord, preserves our Christian freedom, certainly. So along those lines, we find Jesus in these verses in step with Old Testament prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Joel, Zechariah, who condemned hypocrisy in fasting. So Jesus is speaking to us this morning as the great prophet, the very word of God made flesh, who sees all that we are and all that we do, and therefore he instructs us that we don't need do not need to publicize our piety and fasting. Instead, Christian fasting is a secret discipline. Maybe another word here on secrecy in fasting, perhaps what it doesn't mean. I don't think that this is a command to absolute secrecy, but it is a consciousness that understands that God's view of us in fasting is supreme. The decisive matter is not that other people might be aware of our fasting, such as family or small group or even the pastors, but the decisive issue is the posture of our heart in their knowing. Why do they know? What's our aim in sharing that? May our hearts not be tempted to share anything of our fasting from a prideful spirit, but only that which builds up others in Christ. Likewise, Jesus is probably not here attempting to speak of private fasting as the only type of legitimate fast. In fact, we see congregational fasting in the book of Acts. The scripture includes many forms of fasting in its pages. You have public fasting and personal fasting, national fasting, regular and occasional, absolute fasts as well as partial fasts. But here's what Jesus is clear on. Jesus says that no further reward awaits those who fast to be seen by others. But those who take up fasting as a secret discipline, those who practice this righteousness from the heart, they receive a true reward from God. So friends, we're reminded again in Jesus' sermon that we are to live our entire lives before God's presence, before His gaze. We cannot fool God because nothing is outside of His sight. Listen to these words from Jeremiah 23. Can anyone hide themselves in secret places and I not see them? Do I not fill heaven and earth, says the Lord? So let's not forget what appears to be obvious in this section on Matthew 6. That although we do not see God, He certainly sees us. And what He sees of us is most important. And perhaps for some of you, that's the truth that you need to calm your heart today that God sees you. I was reading this week, Psalm 32 and 33, that the eye of the Lord is upon the righteous. For others, the truth of God's omniscient sight should cause you to turn this day from any area of your life that is secretly hidden in rebellion against God. But for all of us, let's continue in those secret acts of worship, discreet giving, private prayer, secret fasting. And we do so knowing that there is an end-time heavenly re reward for those who take up such acts of godliness. So Christian fasting is a secret 
discipline. Second, it's a spiritual discipline. It's a spiritual discipline. In other words, fasting isn't merely an act of depriving yourself from food and drink. It aims at something beyond that. It aims at seeking God, His fullness, His guidance, His forgiveness, His kingdom, His will. We know that Jesus, who gives this instruction, Himself fasted for 40 days in preparation for His public ministry. No doubt that that fasting gave him also probably the ability to overcome the devil's temptations to derail him from ministry. And Jesus also, just like in his teaching ministry, he follows in his own fasting a line of Old Testament saints who fasted in their pursuit of God. And here I want to look at the Old Testament as well as the New Testament to find examples of fasting in the Scripture. What we see in the Old Testament is that saints voluntarily fasted. You have Moses fasting, Samson, Samuel, Hannah, David, Esther, Elijah, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Daniel, to name a few. Times in fasting, times of fasting in the Old Testament were spurred on by times of sorrow, times of grief, times of seeking the Lord in humility, times of danger, times of conviction. Most often, fasting was and still is situational. God's people were prompted to fast, to request urgent help, to request urgent deliverance for guidance, provision, and protection, relief, and even revival, to express their own repentance before God. So an urgent challenge, after urgent challenge in the Old Testament, God's people chose to pursue God not only in prayer, but in fasting. And what we see is that in many of those examples, God graciously intervened to minister to the needs of God's people through fasting. And in the New Testament, we find in Luke's gospel, Anna, in her old age, not departing from the temple, but instead worshiping God through prayer and fasting. She was waiting on God's promised Messiah. We know that John the Baptist and his disciples fasted. Even the Apostle Paul fasted. He was blinded on the road to Damascus and he fasted initially for three days. As I mentioned, the book of Acts records congregational fasting. The church at Antioch fasted before sending out Paul and Barnabas in Acts 13. And in Acts 14, you see the church fasting before appointing elders. And although... Those examples of church fasting might not be prescriptive for how every church should operate. It does remind us that the New Testament church believed that sending and appointing leaders was something worth serious contemplation that led them to fasting. I think it's something that we should consider even as we seek our next lead pastor. Well, those catalog, that catalog of references to fasting demonstrates that God... God's people valued fasting as a spiritual discipline. They saw spiritual good to be attained. They saw God as the one who could change circumstances. The one whose power was not limited. And therefore they sought the Lord in fasting. But what about us? John Calvin says, Many for want of knowing its usefulness undervalue fasting's necessity. And some reject it altogether as superfluous. While on the other hand, where the proper use of fasting is not well understood, it degenerates into superstition.
So if fasting is not superfluous, as Calvin says, but is useful, what are some of fasting's benefits? The Puritans called fasting a soul-fattening institution. So how can fasting fatten us spiritually? What would we be missing? Or what are we missing by neglecting fasting as a spiritual discipline? I just want to rattle off here, not a comprehensive list of the benefits, but I think a thorough enough list to give us that inspiration to see how God could work in our lives and in the church and in the nations through the act of fasting. First, fasting gives us the physical indicator of our comprehensive need for God. Our creatureliness is emphasized in fasting. We are without and we're seeking a God who is always full. It affords us to understand more concretely that Jesus Christ, God Himself, is our daily bread. He is our living water that we feast on. He is our true portion. In fasting, God is sustaining us just like in every other moment. Deuteronomy 8.3 says, Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Fasting puts us in a position of a person with hunger, as if we were a poor person with no, with no food. And it's that dependent position that fasting captures. And so, if there has been a significant amount of time in which we have not undertaken fasting as a discipline, there are a variety of reasons we could give as to why that is. But at least one of the questions we should ask ourselves is, do we really see ourselves as dependent as we actually are? We need God, don't we? To lead our families, to steward our responsibilities, to be the church members we ought to be, to see the gospel proclaimed throughout the world who does not yet know Christ. And that physical hunger of fasting, it can deepen our spiritual awareness. It slows us down in an appropriate way to say, God, I want to make much of you in my life. I need your help to do that. Fasting is also a powerful weapon against, a powerful weapon in spiritual warfare. And here again, we see our Lord Jesus as an example of facing Satan in the wilderness and overcoming him through the Word of God, prayer, but even fasting. Fasting can be a means of starving our related sinful fleshly desires. Paul tells us that the severity to the body has no value in stopping self-indulgence, Colossians 2. And yet, self-control in our lives tends to be tied together. Our lack of ability to be self-controlled in one area often infiltrates into another area of our lives. And so expressing self-control through fasting hopefully would help us be self-controlled, disciplined in other areas of our life. Like David in Psalm 69, we can humble ourselves with fasting. We can commit to wholehearted devotion to God in everything. And this is really the bottom line of fasting. It's only profitable to the degree that it leads us to obedience and greater rest 
in the Lord. When we fast, we become more aware of our own desires. We'll likely realize how controlled we are by cravings. And whether we fast from something like food or even technology, we can see that we probably properly have regard for these gifts, but probably too much as well. Fasting gives expression that we desire more of God, more of His work, more of His leading in our lives. By fasting, we are saying that there are greater needs in my life and in the church and in the world than this meal. Fasting also helps us to, I think, focus our prayer lives around the model prayer. That we want God's name to be honored. We want God's kingdom to come. We want people to experience forgiveness of sins. We want protection from temptation and so on. I think fasting also uniquely nourishes our hunger for God. And lessens our hunger for the things of the world. We remind ourselves in fasting that the best stuff remains on the other side of the Jordan. We don't want our hearts content in Egypt, but on the other side where the milk and honey of God's goodness will satisfy us forever. And in God's providence, He sometimes chooses to answer some of our prayers through the means of fasting. Last week we celebrated Mother's Day. Praise God again for the faithful mothers in this church, women who mother spiritually as well. And a few years ago, There was a time when Kaylee and I did not know if God would give us children. It had been months and months of trying, and near the end of that period of trying, I was told by a current pastor of this church that he, his wife, another pastor and his wife had been fasting on our behalf for God to give us a child. And I was reminded in that moment that God was capable that the church was with us and that we should not give up. And now three girls later, I am so thankful that God chose in His kindness to bless the fasting and praying of not only those families, but our entire church. So even though God does not need our fasting, like prayer or evangelism or the act of preaching, God uses means To accomplish His will. We fast because we know God hears us. Because He is all powerful. Because He rules the world for the good of His children. And in accordance with His sovereign plans, He sometimes, in His mercy, chooses to hear our cries through the groans of fasting. In fact, there might be certain circumstances that are only changed by God through prayer and fasting. Now, since the majority of us likely have rarely fasted or have never fasted, I do want to share with you some beginning steps, some practical steps for fasting. How can we get started in this discipline when we determine to fast? This list of suggestions that I'm sharing uh, are slightly edited from a helpful book by David Mathis called Habits of Grace. would recommend that book to you. And I just want to share with you five uh, suggestions here on how we might take Jesus' teaching here in Matthew 6 and apply it to our lives, our family, and the church. The first suggestion is to start small. 
going from no fasting to multiple day fasting will probably not go well. Instead, start with a single meal. Perhaps fast for one meal a week over a period of time and then try multiple meals. Maybe breakfast and lunch and then you can be perhaps reunited with your family in the evening at dinner. Work your way up to a day-long fast if your health and responsibilities allow. So start small. Second, try a juice fast or a partial fast. Mathis says a juice fast means abstaining from all food and beverage except for juice and water. That juice will give you the nutrients, some sugar to keep you functional, but still allow you to feel the effects of not eating a meal. Now, it's never recommended that you would abstain from water during a fast for any length, but a juice fast or a partial fast like you see in the book of Daniel where Daniel's only eating vegetables and water, that can be a very helpful way to fulfill our responsibilities and still uh, discipline ourselves through fasting. Third, and this is what is probably most important, plan what you'll do instead of eating. Identify the special purpose in your fast. Since fasting is a spiritual discipline, and not just the act of going without food. You should have a plan for the spiritual good you hope will be accomplished through your fasting. We see fasting in the scripture accompanied by prayer. We should accompany our fasting with scriptural meditation. So having a simple plan of what you're going to read in the scripture, things you're going to pray for, perhaps people you're going to talk to that day, all of this will prevent us from aimless fasting. Again, to quote David Mathis, Without a purpose and plan, it's not Christian fasting. It's just going hungry. Fourth, consider how your fasting will affect other people. Plan ahead, one, so how you, to see how you can fast in secret, but also in love toward those around you. Perhaps choose meals where you're not eating will be unnoticed and would not interrupt scheduled plans. So if your spouse is going to be preparing a delicious meal. We don't want to inform that spouse that today was actually my day of fasting. So perhaps we can refrigerate it. <laughs> Along those lines, also consider how we might fast with other people. Again, doing so in, in secret, but seeing how we can encourage one another in our acts of fasting. And then fifth, fast from something other than food. Again, Mathis is helpful when he writes, fasting from food is not necessarily for everyone. Some health conditions keep even the most devout from the traditional course. You should think about consulting a doctor before starting any fasting regimen to make sure that fasting is not going to be harmful to your body. But thankfully, fasting can include voluntary abstinence from other normal functions. So perhaps for you, you need to choose from refraining from some activity or some particular thing for a period of time for the sake of devoting yourself to these spiritual things that we've been discussing. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, believed it was helpful to broaden this definition of fasting. Here's what Lloyd-Jones says. Fasting should really be made to include abstinence from anything which is legitimate in and of itself for the sake of some spiritual purpose. So if it's best for you, given your health condition, to not go without food, consider fasting from things like television, social media, some other regular enjoyment. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul 
even talks about married couples fasting from sex for a limited time that they may devote themselves to prayer. We must remember, whatever our case is with fasting, that fasting does not gain us a token whereby God answers any request we offer to Him. I was thinking this morning of the Apostle Paul, the thorn in the flesh. I would think that as Paul sought the Lord multiple times, he probably came to the point of thinking, should I fast over this? And yet the Lord did not answer his prayer to humble him. And so we have to trust the sovereignty of God in the ways in which we pray during those sessions of fasting. We know from Scripture as we've been singing this morning that fasting does not merit God's favor. We have the full favor of God in Jesus Christ. The Pharisee in Luke 18 was not justified before God by his fasting. Who who went down justified? It was the man who sought the mercy of God, who called out for God to forgive him, to receive him. Those are the people who are justified before God. Our fasting cannot coerce God. It does not manipulate God. Instead, fasting is a spiritual habit we exercise before our Father in heaven as his adopted children. The same Father in heaven who knows what we need before we call out to Him in prayer is the same Father in heaven who knows what has led us to fasting. Who knows that desperate circumstance. Who knows we are at our wit's end. And who is eager to help. Think of all the times God has come to you with with blessing and with intervention without fasting. In fasting, we don't have to call out to God who needs his arm twisted to bestow us with good gifts. He's inclined to help us. So fasting is a secret discipline. It's a spiritual discipline. And third, it's a temporary discipline. It's a temporary discipline. Here I want to go back to that text in Matthew 9. Where again, John's disciples come to him saying, Why do we... And the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast. Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests be sad while the groom is with them? The time will come when the groom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. This Sunday is actually Ascension Sunday, where the Christian church reflects upon the fact that Jesus not only lived a perfect life, died a substitutionary death, was buried three days later, rose from the dead, then appeared to hundreds. He then ascended, was taken up to God's right hand, seated at the right hand of God the Father, interceding for us, ruling over the world. And here in Matthew 9, Jesus says, when the groom will be taken away from them, then they will fast. Matthew 9 teaches that Fasting is a discipline only for this life. Feasting will be the setting of our eternal life with God. So while we await Jesus' second coming, we fast. But upon His return, fasting will be unnecessary. Throughout the sermon, I've referred to the type of fasting as Christian fasting. And I've done so intentionally. That distinction is needed because there are other religious groups that fast. Monks fast. And most notably, Muslims fast. 
In particular, during the month of Ramadan, there's this entire 30-day period of fasting for Muslims. And that fasting for them commemorates Islam's holy book, the Quran. The fast also expresses their submission to Allah. So for them, apart from martyrdom in the service of Allah, Islam does not offer its followers assurance of salvation. So a Muslim's hope for salvation hinges on their perpetual submission to Allah. Indeed, the very word Islam means submission, and Muslim means one who submits. Fasting during Ramadan represents one of five key acts of submission known as Islam's pillars. But church Christian fasting is different. We fast in the confidence of Christ's person and work. We fast because Jesus, who gives this instruction, has already saved us by His blood. He has secured for us our right standing with God and, in fact, every spiritual blessing. We fast because we long for the leadership of God in our lives, not because we are uncertain of our standing with God. We fast because we already have been seated with Christ in the heavenly places and we will one day reign with Him in the age to come. As I mentioned, we fast before our Father in heaven. God is referenced as Father 17 times in the Sermon on the Mount. Ten of those come in chapter 6, 1 through 21. These acts of righteousness are practiced by adopted children who have the righteousness of God imputed to them who have been forgiven of all of their sins. Neither fasting nor anything else we could do, no matter how painful, no matter how self-sacrificial, generous or unselfish, none of those acts can atone for our sins and reconcile us to God. If you're not a believer here today, your takeaway is that God does not need your fasting to save you. There is no act that you can do to clean yourself from your sin. Jesus Christ stands ready to forgive those who simply humble themselves by confessing their sins to God. Who repent in their hearts. Who receive Jesus' perfect life and death and resurrection on their behalf. The sacrifice needed is not your fasting. It's Jesus' work on the cross. And unlike Israel, who disobeyed God in their 40 years in the wilderness, we see in the Gospels Jesus Christ perfectly obeying God in His 40-day fast. He was perfect in holiness throughout all of His life. He, He overcame every temptation to sin. He fulfilled all righteousness on our behalf. And then He died. He was buried. He rose again and He gives us fasting as a way to fellowship with Him. To enjoy more of Him. To long for more of Him in His return. But based on Matthew 9 church, fasting is not forever because Jesus Christ is coming back. The bridegroom will return for His bride, the church. The challenges of this fallen world, our sinful flesh, the spiritual forces who oppose us, they will be done away with. But for now, we fast to be more enthralled with God. We fast to see the nations reached, our children saved, our churches healthy. 
we fast for all of our needs and to see all of God's desires carried out. But we fast only for a time until our Lord returns. So church, consider your next fast. Perhaps not for lunch, but sometime after that. What can you abstain from to experience God more satisfyingly? And as you fast, do so in secret, remembering that this is a spiritual discipline and praise God, it's a temporary one as well. Let's pray. Father God, we're just amazed at our salvation in Jesus Christ. We're so thankful, Lord, that you are near to us. We're thankful, Lord, that you're not repelled by our brokenheartedness. But your steadfast love toward us endures forever. Lord, I pray that we would receive this teaching of Jesus. We would see it for the good that it is the purposes for which you have given it to us and that we would be a church and we would be Christians ready to see Jesus Christ return and that fasting would be a means to rid our hearts of the lusts of this world and to ready ourselves for the world to come. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.